Are y'all ready? I'm ready for this. Okay. Welcome home. From Simmons Radio, The Shark, and The Simmons Voice, this is Welcome Home, a show about news, culture, and stories that impact Simmons University. No matter where you are, we'll keep you updated on what's happening at home. Well, here we are. Welcome to the first episode of Welcome Home. My name is Izan Delicado. I use they or she pronouns, and I'm a senior at Simmons. I am also the general manager at Simmons Radio The Shark and the arts and entertainment editor for The Simmons Voice. And I am here on Zoom with my fantastic co-hosts. Hi, I'm Katie. I am a junior at Simmons, and I use she, her, hers pronouns. I am the news editor of The Simmons Voice and the assistant general manager of Simmons Radio, The Shark. Hi, I'm Abby Vervak. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a senior here at Simmons. I'm also the managing editor of The Simmons Voice. Hi, I'm Sarah Carlin. I use she, her pronouns. I am a senior here at Simmons, and I am the editor-in-chief of The Simmons Voice. Just a quick disclaimer, we are not in the studio recording this podcast. We are all in our respective closets and Sarah under a bunk bed. So please forgive any audio quality issues. We are doing the best we can and we hope that you enjoy this first episode of the podcast. And we have a lot to cover today from plans for the spring semester to updates on the One Simmons Project. So we might as well jump into it. Katie? Yeah, so as we got into October, I became really interested in what Simmons is going to be doing for the spring semester. Um, Spring internships are beginning to be posted. Other schools have begun announcing their plans. Back in the summer on June 17th, Simmons emailed all the students with a rough phased timeline for how the university is making decisions. Stage three of the plan was set for August 15th through October 15th, and it was labeled as fall execution and spring planning. So I interviewed Laura Brink Pazinski. She is the Vice President of University Real Estate Development and Facilities Management and the head of the steering committee for the Simmons COVID-19 Recovery Task Force. Um, I asked her point blank if we would have a decision by October 15th. Um, So she hesitated and then said no. She said that her best guess is that we'll have an announcement in early November, and the timeline has changed due to new data coming out about the pandemic and new health guidelines. I also interviewed interim provost Russell Pinizzotto. He is the head of the academic subcommittee within the task force, and he said the same thing, guessing it would be about another month before we would hear. I asked them both about the process of making the decision, and Laura told me that President Wooten had asked the task force to come up with two plans for next semester. One of the plans will be keeping with our current model of all online learning with only a few students back on campus. The other plan they're developing now, they have to decide what the other plan is going to look like, whether it will be allowing more students back, having some classes in person, or whatever they come up with. Both Laura Brink-Pudzinski and Provost Pinizzotto said that there will be at least some online education component to next semester. This is partly because there's going to be a proportion of students who are not going to be able to come back for personal health and safety reasons. So that's where we're at now. 
Um, I also spoke to student to Queen Bo. She's currently living on campus now because she's a nursing student doing clinical rotations at Mass General Hospital. And at Simmons, she's working as a resident assistant or RA as we call them. So she predicted that Simmons will make a plan similar to the current model. She thinks that maybe they'll let a few students back on campus, but won't allow all students back because the number of COVID cases in Boston hasn't improved since where they were at the lowest point in the summer. In fact, they've only gotten worse. So as of the time that we're recording this, around 8 p.m. on October 8th, 134,277 people have tested positive for the coronavirus. And that's in Massachusetts, according to the Massachusetts Public Health Department. And that number includes 21,576 cases in Suffolk County. So what do you guys think about what Simmons will do next semester? What are your predictions? Can I can I ask a dumb question? Yeah, go for it. What is a steering committee? Laura Brink-Pazinski said she's the leader of the steering committee of the COVID task force. What does that mean? The way that the task force is set up is they have this one steering committee, which has all the heads of all of the other committees, plus Laura Brink-Pazinski, who's leading the steering committee. And so there's a ton of different members from the various subcommittees who serve on the steering committee, including um, people like interim, uh, interim provost Russell Pinizzotto, who's leading the academic subcommittee. The academic subcommittee has about 18 members. Those committees meet as often as they need to. And the steering committee for the COVID task force meets twice a week for planning. So my question is about the use of 2U when we are online due to COVID. Was there any talk of tweaking 2U or the way that Simmons is carrying out online learning, giving the feedback they've been getting from this semester? Yeah, so Susan Antonelli, who is the Dean of Students, she just sent out an email to all of the students asking them how they're doing this semester. Questions about how 2U is working for them as our online platform. And Laura Brink-Pazinski told me that that survey is in part going to be used to inform how they might improve or continue on an online model for next semester. They also said that they're going to use everything that they've learned from this fall semester to inform the decisions of next semester. So that goes from anything from planning all the way to individual academics. Do we know how students and faculty are feeling about this? Are there, are there faculty committees and student committees that are reporting back up to the steering community that have any impact in this decision or any any are there thoughts being heard about it? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, students' involvement, they're not involved in the steering committee in any way, really, other than um, responses to the survey and general um, student feelings. They're not directly involved. In terms of student feelings, when I talked to Tu Queen Vo, she told me that she's heard from a lot of people that they want to come back to campus and that they really miss it. But she says that even if students come back, it's not really going to be like what normal used to be. You're not going to be able to hang out with each other on weekends or between classes. You're not going to be able to have brunch together. All of food is grab and go. Um, no one's allowed in each other's rooms. The current model for campus is either everyone has a single room or a suite style room so that they all have their own private bathrooms. I know that when Two Queen heard a lot of people wanting to come back, that was her immediate response, that even if students come back, it's really not going to be the same as it was before COVID hit. 
Um, in terms of faculty, faculty are involved in the steering committee in the various subcommittees. And I don't I, I don't have a list of uh, for you of all the faculty involved because there's just so many different subcommittees within this one task force that I cannot remember off the top of my head everyone who's in it. But there are certain levels of involvement from both groups. Did they mention anything about considering the cost of different options? I know that obviously testing the small amount of students who are currently on campus is a little bit of an undertaking because those tests can add up quickly when you're testing students anywhere from one to two days a week. But also there is the cost of the 2U partnership. Do those play a role in this decision process? So they didn't speak a lot about the financial decisions Simmons has to make going forward with these plans. That's definitely going to be a consideration, but they didn't tell me exacts about the financial questions, um, mostly because they haven't decided on what, or they haven't told me what their two plans are going to be. So they haven't been able to tell me how they're narrowing down to make those financial decisions. I mean, students who are paying tuition for this semester know that we had an increased health center fee, even if we're not living on campus. And that's partially due to kind of helping manage the students who are living on campus. So if I'm making a bet, which is very dangerous, um, but I would say that if students at a greater number are going to come back, we could see those health center prices rise. But again, don't hold me to that. But I do think that there is definitely going to be some changes to the way that tuition was priced this semester. Well, I know that no matter what, when we come back to campus, plenty of changes will have taken place, whether it's with tuition or with the construction that's going on on campus for the One Simmons Project. We'll hear more about that later on from Abby. Also coming up in just a bit is Hannah Madden's Mass Politic Moment. This is a fantastic segment that she is contributing to this podcast, and there are ways for you to get involved too. Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I would love to, Is. So what we're really aiming for with this podcast is creating a space that helps us bring a little bit of the Simmons community to our listeners. But in order for us to do that, we need your help. We are looking for contributions of all kinds, audio segments, original music, story ideas for us to cover, or even let's say you know a lot about koalas and you want to have a weekly koala fact. We want to hear your koala facts. Again, we're trying to create community, but we need help from our community. If you're interested in being involved, shoot us an email at either the voice's email, voice at simmons.edu, or the shark's email, simmonsradio at gmail.com. All of our contact info will also be in the description of this episode. Moving right into Hannah Madden's mass politic moment. What's up? It's Hannah Madden. This is your Massachusetts politics rundown. As we all know, 2020 is quickly shaping up to be the year of the mail-in ballot. So far, more than 1.6 million Massachusetts voters have requested to vote by mail uh, amid the pandemic. But over the past several weeks, hundreds, maybe even thousands of Massachusetts voters uh, received mail-in ballots for the November election with incorrect uh, voting instructions that told them that their votes are due by September 1st, which is the now-passed state primary uh, election day. Secretary of the Commonwealth William Galvin's office is claiming that this is merely a clerical error, uh, but it's difficult to say with so much misinformation already spreading about mail-in voting uh, what kind of impact this will have on voter turnout for the general election. Looking now to the mayoral race, Marty Walsh's campaign finance report shows a huge spending surge, which is leading some to believe that he's getting ready to gear up for a re-election fight. 
Walsh has not officially announced that he's running for re-election, but with high-profile announcements like Michelle Wu's campaign and Andrea Campbell's campaign, all eyes are on Marty Walsh to see what his next move is going to be. And earlier in the week, we had our first and only chance to see Senator Ed Markey face off against GOP challenger Kevin O'Connor. This is the only time that the two are going to be debating before the general election, and because Massachusetts is a traditionally very blue state, all bets are pretty much on Ed Markey after his primary upset against Joe Kennedy. And that's my roundup for this week. Keep an eye out for that mayoral race in Boston. I think it's going to start heating up pretty quick. Will Marty Walsh run for re-election? Will he get a Biden cabinet position? Who's to say? I don't know. Catch you next time. And that was a Massachusetts politics moment from Hannah Madden. Thank you. Things are going to be looking a little different once we get back to campus. And Abby has the update on the One Simmons Project and the construction that's been going on on academic campus. Abby, if you want to take it away. Thanks, Sarah. We still don't know when students are going to return to campus, but when they do, they might be a little surprised that it looks different than when they left in March. Construction of the One Simmons Project started in the beginning of summer after being slightly delayed by the COVID-19 pandemic. For those who don't know, the One Simmons Project is the university's plan to consolidate the residents in the academic campuses. It was originally announced in spring 2019. After completing several smaller renovation projects on the academic campus, Simmons will demolish the Park Science Building, and in its place, it will build the Living Learning Center, which will replace the entire residence campus, including the dorms, the home sports center, and Bartle Hall. Um, to replace the Park Science Building, Simmons will create a new science facilities in the Lefebvre Building, which is where the library is. The other renovation projects include moving the Student Activity Center and the Multicultural Center to the Management Building on the first floor, and the creation of the new Student Media Center in the main college building. Obviously, this is a big undertaking, and something this large takes time. According to Laura Brink-Pazinski, who Katie mentioned earlier, construction in One Palace Road and in the management building, including those new spaces for student orgs and the multicultural center, are slated to be done in mid-November 2020, so very soon. Construction projects in parts of the main college building will be mostly complete by February 2021. And the new student media center in MCV will be complete mid-November. The larger project at hand, which is the renovations in Lefebvre, are projected to be completed in 2022. And after those renovations are complete, Simmons will then demolish the Park Science Building and start building the Living Learning Center, which will take approximately 36 months. Obviously, this is a huge project. In the university's most recent master plan, it said Simmons students' feedback provides and national research confirms that student housing preferences have changed. In order to keep the pace, Simmons needs to transform from its classic traditional residential campus to the type of modern and welcoming living environment that prospective students are looking for when they select a college. And so that's what these projects are aimed to do. If you recall, the current Student Activity Center is located in that dark tunnel between MCV and the Lefebvre building. And Laura Brink-Pazinski really described these new spaces as full of natural light, and she wanted it to be, quote, the living room of campus. So they're really trying to change the feel of the campus as well as update the facilities. And if you want to see what those new spaces are going to look like, you can read the full story on the Simmons Voice, which has graphics and projected designs. What do you guys think of this project. So I know that Laura Brink-Pazinski told you that research on the national level is driving this as well as input from Simmons students, but I know from past community meetings and online response that it seems like students aren't really looking forward to this and aren't looking forward to losing the res campus. Have you heard anything about this seeming discrepancy in, in what students want? 
That's a great question. I've been reporting on this story back and forth since about February. Especially then, students were really frustrated with the lack of communication around the project. A lot of students weren't aware that there were parts of the One Simmons project other than building the Living Learning Center. And, and so if I could just interrupt really quickly and incoming students. So first years this year didn't even know that this project was going to be a thing, did they? Right. So I talked to an incoming student back in March who had put their deposit down. Um, and that was pre-COVID when there are a lot of other students still who have not even seen campus. She talked about how she had never heard about the project during her time visiting campus and was a little disappointed. And she actually said that she was a little bit excited about the project, but the lack of communication was what was frustrating for her. Interestingly, though, after we posted this story on The Voice this week on Instagram, we said that we found that some students were excited about the project after seeing some of the designs for the new student spaces. The biggest point of contention is still definitely losing the residence campus. Um, even Laura Brink-Pazinski in our interview described that as an oasis for students. And so losing that green space, which is kind of rare to find in Boston, it's really a beautiful space. Students are not as excited about the Living Learning Center. With that being said, there have been talks before about how much money it would take to renovate the residence campus to fulfill the needs of students. Um, the buildings on the residence campus are so old that they are not all ADA compliant. The new building will be more accessible to students, according to the administration. You're telling me all of these different timelines. Um, and the one that I found most pressing was the Living and Learning Center taking 36 months to complete. How are students going to be affected by the construction when they return to campus? It seems like a lot of disruption. That's a great question. So it depends on when students return. If students return before the construction of the Living Learning Center, they will still be disrupted by the construction. Um, the library in its physical space will not be accessible to students. So those spaces like study rooms that students often use for midterms and finals will not be in use. And there's also going to be a lot of parts of the quad that are dug up so they can move utilities for the new spaces around campus. Uh, Laura Brinkosinski told me that the most disruptive part of the construction of the Living Learning Center will be placing the foundation. They are hoping to complete that part of the project during the summer of 2022 so that students don't have to be there for that part. But needless to say, there is definitely going to be disruption on campus for quite some time. Has there been any indication that COVID has been speeding up the timeline of the project at all? Laura Brinkosinski did mention that they have been able to disrupt students less with the construction. It hasn't necessarily been any faster, but it, it has made it easier that at the very earliest, no staff or faculty will, ret will return to campus until the end of 2020. So that has made the disruption a lot less severe. One thing I will say is that they were able to install a better ventilation system in the main college building um, because students weren't on campus and keeping COVID in mind. So the air quality especially when students return, there likely will still be COVID to some extent, um, will be better in that building. I just want to quickly add that for the student I spoke to, to Queen Vo for my other story, she told me that she only has been over to the academic campus once, and she actually had to get a hard hat checked out to her by public safety. So even for the limited number of students, about 90 students who are currently living on campus, there is a bit of disruption, despite the fact that they're not even really going over to the academic campus. 
Yeah, exactly, Katie. And in that sense, I think the remote, uh, the remote and online learning has, has made it a little bit easier for Simmons to say that they're upholding Simmons traditions in a different way. I also spoke with Assistant Dean of Student Engagement, Corey Zolman, who talked about how student affairs is trying to carry on all these different Simmons traditions so that nothing is lost when students return to campus, no matter how it looks. That includes apparently virtual winter wonderland. So we will see what that shapes up to look like. But they're trying to make it seem that this is Simmons, but it's just Simmons more polished. We will see when we return to campus if that holds up or if it looks very different. Last week, the Simmons community lost an incredible individual. Nikolai Kermakov, Simmons's crew and rowing coach for the past 25 years, passed away very suddenly. Sophia Gulick and Isabella Delicato have the story. Hey, Sophia. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Iz. Thanks so much for having me. So, obviously, a huge impact on the Simmons community when the news came out that Nikolai Kermakov, the coach of the Simmons crew team for 29 years, passed away unexpectedly while rowing on the Charles. Kermakov was an active member in the Boston rowing community, coaching the women's sweeps teams at the Riverside Boat Club and racing in his spare time. During his time as the head coach for Simmons Crew, the team rose to new heights. For sure. In 2006, Simmons earned medals competing at various championship regattas and also won the New England Fours Women's Division Championship in 2007 and 2008. The Varsity Eight rode to a first place finish at the 2009 Seven Sisters Regatta. In the spring of 2010, they were also ranked as high as seventh in the nation. The first Varsity 8 was ranked nationally for six consecutive weeks in 2016, and this also included a number 11 national ranking during the season. In 2018 and 2020, Simmons crew members also received votes in a national poll. Kermakov also, during his time, coached multiple All-American rowers. The Simmons Sharks definitely accomplished many achievements under Nick and really made a name for themselves during his coaching over the years. So in covering this story, Sophia did the interviews. Sophia, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to hear the stories of his rowers? Definitely is. It was really heartwarming to read the different responses from his athletes. I had reached out to recent graduates, Hannah Dyke and Chloe Furstein, about their experiences of having Kermakoff as a coach for the past four years, as well as current senior captain, Steffi Gaeta. They were really able to paint a clear picture of what having Nick was like as a coach at Simmons. Dyke commented on the unique nature of crew at Simmons, as many students come without having had opportunities to row in high school. Because of this, lots of folks are encouraged to give it a shot. Not everyone sticks with it, but Dyke said that the open door and welcoming mentality allowed for Kermakov to make connections with more folks than he would have if it was a more restrictive program. Gaeta spoke on the principles that Kermakov installed in the team talking about teaching teammates to care for one another and really creating an environment that felt like a family. Fernstein touched on this as well, but after being sent home because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Coach Kermakov called every single team member, at least 30 people, to make sure that they and their families were safe and healthy. And I think that this really shows how close of a connection Nick had with his rowers and how much he cared for everyone. From all that we've heard from Dyke, Gaeta, Furstein, and others from Simmons, Riverside, and beyond, there was a common sentiment that there won't be a sunrise over the Charles River that they won't think of Coach Kermakoff. Well, I think that about wraps us up for today. Thank you so much for listening. This was fantastic. Thank you, Sarah, Abby, and Katie.
in next week's show, we're going to be talking about hooking up during a pandemic and how to communicate doing that safely. Samaya Ali's creative process and what it's like being an artist and a student in the midst of a pandemic, the second annual Eiffel Forum, which is coming up, and even more. And also just to reiterate what Sarah said earlier, there are plenty of ways to get involved with Welcome Home. So please feel free to reach out to either The Voice or The Shark. All of our contact information is in the description of this episode. We just want to give a quick extra shout out to Hannah Madden for her mass politics moment and to Sophia Gulick for reporting on the story about Nikolai Kermakov and his nearly 30 years of dedication to Simmons University. Ready? We're just gonna banter about how to end it, and that's how we'll end it. Okay. okay. What about honey? Say, I'm home. Honey. <laughs> Welcome home. I'll see you next week for a, for a plate at my house. I'll take the roast out of the oven, and I'll set the plates for dinner, and we'll be done. What about we say we say, uh, come back home again next week. Your mother if, misses you. What if we all said <laughs> "Welcome home" on three? Okay, let's do it. Okay, okay, okay. It's gonna be hard. Okay, ready? <laughs> okay, one, 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 two, two three. three. Well, "Welcome Home" was created, produced, and edited by Isabella Cotto, Katie Cole, Abby Vervak, and Sarah Carlin. The theme music for this podcast was created by Matthew Harrison, aka Maddie Sun. The cover art for our podcast was made by Carly Dickler. Special thanks to everyone who contributed in the making of this podcast, through writing articles, conducting interviews, creating segments, and so much more. This has been a production of Simmons Radio The Shark and The Simmons Voice.